Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Jason Shulman, and this is New Books in Australian and New Zealand Studies. My guest today is Claire Higgins. She's a senior research associate at the Caldor Center for International Refugee Law at the University of New South Wales Law School. She's here to talk about her new book, Asylum by Boat, Origins of Australia's Refugee Policy, published by New South Press in September 2017. Claire, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me, Jason. Well, it's great to have you on. Claire, I would say that Australians policy, Australia's policy in recent years toward asylum seekers uh, trying to reach Australia by boat is one of those topics that even if you don't live in Australia, you have heard about. So can you tell us a little bit about the policy and why it's been so controversial? You are absolutely right. It certainly does make headlines overseas. I think the New York Times has taken a particular interest uh, in the harshness of Australia's current treatment of asylum seekers. But just to set the scene, um, Australia, for many years, like the US and Canada, um, in the first half of the 20th century, had racially discriminatory immigration policy. And then when it moved away from that, um, there were other changes in the immigration landscape, and asylum seekers began travelling to Australia by boat. And so for the last, say, 25 years, Australia has taken a particularly harsh approach, increasingly harsh, uh, beginning with the institution of a system of mandatory detention, where if an asylum seeker arrived by boat, they would be um, mandatorily detained. Um, And that system has gradually moved offshore. So today we have detention centres in other countries, in the Pacific, in Papua New Guinea and Nauru. And so this has been going on for, for several years, but your book looks at, as the title says, the origins of these types of policies. Um, you look to the late 1970s and early 1980s, these, this group of about 3,000 asylum seekers, mostly from Vietnam. Why was it important to look back at that time to understand current contemporary concerns? I think it was very important because this was the, the Vietnamese were the first uh, sustained arrival of asylum seekers to Australia by boat. And they preceded that harsh period in the last quarter century that I was talking about just then. They uh, arrived in Australia in the late 1970s and they were not detained. A system of detention was not established and their boats were not turned back. So these policies that Australia has become very familiar with, sadly, in the last few years, turning back boats and detaining people, uh, were not used then. And it's uh, historians and, and popular public imagination, that period in which Australia um, brought the Vietnamese boat people ashore and uh, settled them in Australia is, is remembered um, in a sentimental way. It's remembered as a very positive moment in Australian history uh, because it was immediately after the end of that racially discriminatory era that I was talking about. Um, earlier. And so I wanted to go back and look at that and think, okay, well, how did Australia um, receive these people and why did it receive them in a humane manner in contrast to what we see today? Mm -hmm. 
And so today, you know, when, when we have the these turning back of the boats and the detention, what are some of the reasons given? You know, is it national security? You, you talk about border control. Uh, you know, obviously race is a factor, economics. Have things changed that much since the 1970s? In terms of public anxieties around um, unauthorized or unexpected arrivals um, uh, of, around border control, what we would call border control today, no, things haven't really changed. Uh, and, and government in Australia has always sought to control entry. This was sort of a founding principle when Australia was federated as a nation in 1901, control of immigration. The difference really is that government in the late 1970s and early 80s when the Vietnamese were coming handled that issue politically and, and in policy terms very differently because he attempted to reassure the public that it was in control and that these people who were sailing to Australia uh, deserved to have their claims for protection assessed. So today what we've seen is sort of a race to the bottom between uh, major political parties. The issue has become very politicised in a negative way. That's right. And one of the things that is really interesting about the book is that it's there's kind of bipartisan criticism, that, that neither of the two major parties really comes out looking very good. Is that right? Oh, see, I think they they ended up working together. I think I want um, – in the book I tried to show that behind the scenes there was a lot of debate within uh, the public service um, between civil servants over how to respond to the boats, but the political leaders actually tried to um, to – present the, um, the needs of these asylum seekers in a very positive way to the public. I, there certainly was some political tension between, in Australia we have two major parties, uh, Liberal, uh, which would be sort of the more conservative side of politics, and Labor, um, which would be left of centre. And when the Vietnamese were coming, the Labor Party, um, it, it, for the first few years, had um, some, some unrest uh, because it, the trade unions were um, uh, not necessarily happy about people coming here um, unauthorised. They viewed those fleeing Vietnam through a class lens, uh, that these were uh, people who would come to Australia and vote liberal, they would vote um, for the right, uh, that they would take Australian jobs. All these these economic um, anxieties and, and hang-ups were present in the debate then. But but ultimately, you did reach some. We did reach some form of bipartisanship, and that certainly helped um, carry the day. One one of the important figures in the book is the the then Prime Minister Fraser. How does kind of this story shed light on his legacy? What I think is really interesting, Jason, is that when we look at studies of Fraser's legacy and his government and its decision making, studies that were published before um, the mid nineties after mandatory detention had come in and, and asylum seekers became much more of a political issue in Australia. If we look at those early studies, they don't even mention this issue. They don't mention uh, refugees who've sailed to Australia by boat. They barely mention Australia's large-scale resettlement of Vietnamese. And I think when we look at, at his legacy, that is a very interesting um, realisation because we can see that uh, his government was successful in playing down this issue. It didn't make political hay. Um, it, it avoided the politicisation of asylum seekers coming by boat. And we realise that we're looking at, at, his, at the period of his government and its management of, of asylum seekers 
through because we've been prompted by the politicization of policy today. One of the um, one of the criticisms of the Australian policy right now is that there's very little access for journalists and human rights groups. What was it like then? Were you able to access uh, sources, archival materials about the 1970s story? Yes, um, I had excellent access to archives at the held in Canberra, in Australia's capital, at the National Archives. These were Department of Immigration files and. Uh, foreign affairs files, cabinet records, um, and I also had access to files maintained by the UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency, um, based in Australia at the time. Um, the legal advisor at the UNHCR then is today the world's uh, foremost legal expert on the Refugee Convention, Professor Guy Goodwin-Gill, uh, and he was based in Australia at the time, and, and his files show how Australia, how the Australian government liaised with the UN Refugee Agency over the reception of asylum seekers. But um, getting back to your question about um, journalists having access to um, asylum seekers and um, ref- uh, the offshore camps today, you have a copy of the book, I understand, and the front cover, I don't know if you've noticed the front cover, if we can just talk about that for a second. Uh, there are two black and white photos there on that cover, and one of them uh, is a close-up of an Australian official holding a young Vietnamese child, and they are standing on the wharf at um, Darwin in Australia's north where people were coming ashore, and he has an adoring look on his face, and that child is clearly comfortable and happy, and they've just come ashore, and... The officials are there sort of doing preliminary processing. That would never happen today. That photo was taken by a photographer employed by the Department of Immigration because they were trying to humanise this issue for the Australian public. Fascinating. Uh, Claire, I, I want to ask you uh, about kind of the what, – what what we can learn kind of about the timing of things. So, so you say um, that 1984 was kind of an inflection point. Uh, there's kind of a rise of a more conservative nationalist politics. Can you tell us a little bit about, about kind of the transition from the 70s to the 80s? Yes. So in 1984, it was the year after um, the Fraser government lost office. Mr. Fraser um, left parliament and we had this kind of, a surfacing of, of an anxiety about immigration that had previously been um, uh, that had not entered mainstream political discourse, and it was partly because of the major changes um, in immigration policy since the end of, of the racially discriminatory criteria, which had ended in the early 1970s. And so, about a decade later, you had this sort of demographic backlash, but it was really coinciding with a period of economic downturn as well. So you had these kind of anxieties mixed with um, an an economic uncertainty amongst uh, white Australians who perhaps didn't understand why we needed to bring in um, immigrants and because uh, non-white immigrants are visibly different, um, the impact, perceived impact on the economy was greater than perhaps it had been before, and, and this became um, a partisan political issue in 1984. 
one of the interesting similarities uh, between you know the origin story that you're telling and the contemporary story um, was this what, what you say was a confusion or misrepresentation about who these people are. Uh, can you talk a little bit about you know what what the continuities are and and wh- why that happens? Definitely myths and misunderstandings and misrepresentations of asylum seekers of why people flee their country and seek protection elsewhere. These have gone back um, many years in Australian history and certainly were present when the Vietnamese were arriving and they are very present today. There's a a key difference here is that uh, the current Minister for Immigration in Australia, uh, Peter Dutton, comes out um, periodically in the media and uh, uses terms such as economic refugee or fake refugee now, these qualifiers, these sort of grammatic modifiers, obviously frame that idea of a refugee as um, someone whose status is questionable. Now, this is totally false. It's a nonsense. A refugee is a refugee. And the difference between now and back then is, as I alluded to earlier, the Minister for Immigration, when the Vietnamese were coming, uh, Michael McKellar and his successor, Ian McPhee, were... Um, trying to um, discredit any idea that had surfaced within public debate or or political commentary that the people coming to Australia weren't deserving of protection. They used very positive terms. Um, So they definitely played down that idea of um, refugees being anything other than deserving protection. One of the really interesting things in the book is that even in the 1970s, you know, there were conservative, even extreme policies that were considered. Um, but what was important, you say, is that they were ultimately rejected. So how does understanding the that period kind of help us to think about what Australia could or should do now? That's a really good question, Jason. If I can go back to the two policies that I mentioned at the start. One is um, offshore detention, which we currently have in place, which your listeners may have read about in the New York Times or Washington Post or um, the BBC, and turnbacks, what we call in Australia turnbacks, where the Australian authorities intercept people at sea and turn back their boats forcibly. These two policies that are in place today uh, and have um, bipartisan support, they were considered, as you said, um, by the Department of Immigration back in the late 70s when the Vietnamese were coming to Australia and they were rejected. And I was actually shocked to find them even listed in the files. I was sitting in the archives one day and I turned the page and there in front of me was a list of potential um, ways of dealing with people, come asylum seekers coming by boat, and and these options were listed there. And it, it physically took my breath away when I read it because it was so unexpected, because it was so contrary to this popular view that we have of Australia's reception of the Vietnamese. But if I can add the reasons why they were rejected, it's wonderful they were written down in the first place because the reasons for rejecting them were then um, spelled out as well. And it is important for us to think about these today in relation to current policy because, let's say, turnbacks, turning back boats, um, these were rejected then for the same reasons they should be rejected today, which is the essential question, turn back to where? And the Minister for Immigration back then under the Fraser government, he said publicly, turn back to where? Why should other countries take refugees that have been turned back by Australia? 
And that question remains today because you mentioned um, secrecy, the inability of journalists to find out what's going on in Australia's current um, treatment of asylum seekers. Turnbacks are incredibly secret because government refuses to comment either um, to Senate committee hearings or in press conferences or in any other manner, refuses to comment on what it calls on-water matters. It's presented as a security risk to uh, give any information about what is actually happening at sea. So we have no idea what's going on when Australian authorities intercept asylum seekers at sea. It's an incredibly serious issue. And detention centres uh, were rejected in the late 70s for um, reasons which have since been borne out. Uh, the Secretary of the Department of Immigration, he wrote to the Minister, he said this, these facilities will be a challenge to our humanity. They will create a political problem. They will um, require what he called a tremendous guard apparatus. And that has been borne out. Australia has spent more than $4 billion on detaining asylum seekers on Manus and Nauru. And these are just 2,000 asylum seekers in the last four years. $4 billion. So it's an incredible contrast between the decision-making then and now. It really is. Claire, I want to thank you so much for being on the show today. That's Claire Higgins. Her new book is Asylum by Boat, Origins of Australians' Refugee Policy, published by New South Press in September 2017. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.